You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to a special edition of The Feed. An historic transit announcement was made earlier this week that saw the federal government committing $12 billion to support Ontario's multi-billion dollar transit plan to build four priority subways in the GTA, including right here in York Region. The combined subway projects will create jobs, increase ridership, attract businesses, lift residential property values even further, and help ignite economic recovery. The goal of the $28.5 billion transit plan to provide better, more reliable, and seamless rapid transit for the GTA. The Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, is our guest on the feed right now. Thank you for joining us, Prime Minister. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Anne. So, Prime Minister, this transit partnership and the timing of it, why and why now, in the middle of another fierce wave of the pandemic? First of all, this is something we've been working on for many, many years. As uh, as a federal government, we have stepped up in infrastructure investments across the country, across uh, Ontario, across the GTA uh, over the past number of years, and uh, we've been working hard towards this point. I know we're very much in uh, in the, the third wave of the pandemic right now, but people are starting to look towards the future, and they know that reliable public transit and economic growth is going to be really important, uh, which is why we're so pleased to be moving forward with this uh, $12 billion announcement that's going to support Canadians, create jobs, protect the environment, and grow our economy. How will York Region benefit? Well, first of all, the uh, the Young North subway extension is uh, going to make a huge difference. Uh, I've uh, spoken about this many times with a lot of the local uh, local leaders, like uh, Mayor Frank Scarpitti, who's been a great partner on this. We know how much it matters to uh, to move forward on this, and that's why we're so happy to be here. But one of the things that's been really important as well is the federal government has pushed really hard uh, as part of our money coming in to make this happen. Uh, we've demanded that there be investments. Uh, in affordable housing, uh, particularly around the stops so that that's accessible for people, that there be community benefits uh, in the construction process, that there be environmental benefits, uh, and that there also be a level of public consultation and engagement to make sure that these projects are gotten right. Uh, These are things that the federal government has forced to be in the the deal uh, because we've been listening to the people of York Region. Prime Minister, three levels of government, one taxpayer, huge deficits, both nationally and here in Ontario, a $28.5 billion transit plan. So where does the money come from? First of all, we know that keeping more cars on the road or uh, contributing to even greater pollution or not having good construction jobs ends up being far more expensive uh, than making the right kinds of investments for the future. This is the kind of thing that is going to allow people uh, to get to and from work uh, much more quickly. It'll make uh, uh, homes uh, in uh, in Markham and in in, uh, in New York region uh, much more uh, suitable for people who work downtown. Uh, these are the kinds of things that create growth and opportunities for everyone. That's why we've been so committed to investing in public transit, uh, because we know it's a lever not just for better quality of life as people get home from work sooner and get to spend more time with their kids uh, and spend less time in gridlock, but it's also a way to create economic opportunity and better jobs and growth. So the big announcement, it's been galvanized, it's out there. What happens next? 
Listen, the federal government is not the one who's in the business of uh, drawing lines on a map. We are there to be uh, partners uh, to make sure that it's done the right way, but uh, we know that the municipal and the provincial partners are uh, looking very carefully at uh, at the next steps. The, the guarantee and the money from the federal government allows those steps to move forward, and uh, we have confidence in local leadership that they're going to get it right as it, uh, as it gets built. We now talk about the elephant in the room and it's huge. It is the pandemic. So Canada's response to the pandemic, the vaccine procurement, rollout, lack of supply from time to time, confusion over messaging from certain health authorities. And then, you know, you look at places like the UK and even some states south of the border, they seem to have it figured out. Why haven't we? First of all, we are now uh, in the top three of all the countries in the G20 in terms of vaccination rates. Uh, so a dose is uh, delivered every week. So we're, we're doing very well on that. We, we're doing far better than an awful lot of countries. And we're getting to the place where we're going to have about 50 million vaccine doses in Canada before the end of June with a population of about 38 million. That means that everyone's going to be able to get one dose. And if everyone gets one dose uh, and the most vulnerable get there are two doses and more and more people get two doses as well through the summer. We're going to be able to have uh, ease restrictions, have barbecues with friends, but first and foremost, we've got to also drive down the caseloads. That's why uh, the restrictions need to stay in place until those caseloads are totally down. That's the lessons we've learned from the UK and elsewhere, uh, and that's how we get to a better summer. So I'm going to thank and encourage everyone to continue uh, to get vaccinated, to get that first dose, to book those appointments, because that's how we get through this. How do you feel about giving the provinces and uh, the territories the right to create their own restrictions and guidelines, as opposed to a national overview that would be implemented throughout the country in order to try to contain and bring down the case numbers. Most Canadians know that the situation in, in York Region, the situation in the GTA, is very different than the situation in Montreal or the situation in Nunavut or the situation in Vancouver or in Halifax. Uh, there have been very different realities right across the country, and it wouldn't make sense for the federal government to impose uh, rules on every corner of the country when the pandemic is very different everywhere. That's why we've worked hand-in-hand hand with the provinces and territories to make sure that we're giving them the support that allows them to make decisions they need. I mean, all the business supports, all the family and worker supports, all those supports have come from the federal government. Uh, Eight out of ten dollars spent in this pandemic were from the federal government so that provinces could make the right decisions around uh, shutting down and restricting when necessary and where necessary so that, uh, and and knowing that people could be, uh, would be supported, which is what the federal government has done. In terms of messaging, we are are talking about uh, similar messaging as we look to the summer, which is crush those cases right now and get that first dose, and we'll be able to see more restrictions eased through the summer. Uh, but we need to do those two things, which is a message we're, we're sharing right across the country that is very, very clear. And speaking of clear messages, and maybe this is the flip side of that, there has been some confusion coming from NASI and also from Health Canada. So what's your role? What can you do, if anything, to clarify the messaging? Well, I think Canadians understand that as we collect data on impact and effectiveness and, and the best way forward, uh, advice from doctors and experts uh, is going to shift a little bit as we learn more about uh, the vaccines and about the virus. But the bottom line is every vaccine 
approved by Health Canada for use in Canada, uh, so every vaccine anyone could get is safe and effective. And that's why anyone who, like me, uh, got the AstraZeneca vaccine did the right thing. We all need to get the vaccine doses that we can in order to move forward. As you mentioned, the use of AstraZeneca for the first shot has been suspended here in Ontario. You got your shot, as did your wife, Sophie. A lot of other people did in Ontario. Doug Ford, Christine Mm -hmm. Elliott, John Tory, Dr. Davila, Mm -hmm. and hundreds of thousands of other Ontarians, including me. Are you worried about the AstraZeneca shot that's in you now? No, I'm not. Uh, There is a serious side effect, but it is extremely rare, and it can be responded to very quickly uh, because people know uh, to look for it. The reality is the consequences of catching COVID are far greater than that of any side effect in in far too many people. So we are keeping protected by doing this. Uh, The vaccine is safe and effective. As we move forward, there is a recognition that we are receiving far more Pfizer and Moderna doses uh, into the country going forward uh, than we are AstraZeneca, and that will allow people to get uh, first doses of those vaccines. Uh, But people who've had the AstraZeneca did the right thing. Right now, the expectation is that we will get a second dose of AstraZeneca uh, in the coming weeks when the time is right. But they're also looking at is there actually an advantage in getting a different second dose? And that's something that the scientists around the world are studying very closely. And uh, if that seems to be the right thing, uh, that might be a recommendation brought forward. We're not there yet, but everyone who got the AstraZeneca dose, like me, need to know, first of all, they did the right thing. Uh, Secondly, uh, they're going to be well-supported moving forward. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, what is your message to the residents of York Region right now? We're still in spring, but we're heading into summer. What's your message to us? My message is, first of all, thank you. Uh, I know there are so many people who've made tremendous sacrifices over this past year, uh, whether it's frontline workers, whether it's uh, family members working from home and and balancing kids, whether it's the kids themselves who've given up on birthday parties and and sleepovers and spending time with friends. It has been a really tough year, and I just want to say thank you to everyone for hanging in there and say we're getting close to the end. We know what we need to do to get through this, to get to a much better summer. We need to make sure we're still being careful for a few more weeks to drive those cases right down so we can, uh, you know, really be safe in our communities. And we need to keep getting uh, those first doses of vaccines and those second doses as soon as they're available. Vaccination is our ticket through this pandemic. We're all exhausted. We're tired. We're sick and tired of it. Uh, We need to get through it and we just need to keep strong. And I know everyone in York Region is going to be able to do that. The Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. It's a real pleasure. From the beginning, we promised we'd have people's backs, and that's exactly what we're doing, and it's great to talk with you today, Anne. Thank you. After the break, vaccine chaos, the pandemic playoffs, and a shot at tuition. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. 
The vaccine rollout, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine envy, vaccine regret, mixed messaging from Canadian health authorities, rising COVID cases in some provinces and northern communities. What's really going on? How do we separate truth from misinformation, fact from fiction? We are joined on the feed now by a man who's made it his mission to battle coronavirus bunk in an effort to help get this nation out of COVID chaos. Professor Tim Caulfield is the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. He joins us now. Thank you very much for taking the time, Tim. Thanks for having me on, Anne. So there's a lot of mixed messaging going on out there. Let's begin with NACI stepping in and saying what they did about certain vaccines and also what Health Canada maybe hasn't been saying of late about the choice of vaccines and what people should be doing in terms of t- getting the vaccine, getting what's available to them or waiting for what they feel is the right one. Um, really chaotic information environment out there right now. Uh, It's it's remarkable, and and I completely understand why many Canadians may may feel confused. And and I think the NACI recommendations around AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson uh, is a really good example, you know, of of that. So, So first of all, I think it is incredibly important to be honest, to be transparent, about what the evidence says about both uh, the benefits of vaccines, which are, are vast, and, and the risks. And, and I think that's what, at, at, at their core, at the core, NASI was trying to do, right? They were trying to map out this, you know, these are the risks and benefits. But, but and framing matters. And I think what happened is the takeaway for many Canadians, even if this wasn't NASI's intention, the takeaway was, there's a hierarchy of vaccines, right? And you know, you should get this one if you can, and wait if you if if you want. And and I just think that was, you know, personally, I think that was really problematic, a problematic representation because I still think, and the headline is, you know, these vaccines, all of them, you know, we're so lucky to have this menu of vaccines to check, pull from all of them. The data has been incredibly uh, impressive, both uh, with respect to efficacy uh, and uh, with respect to um, uh, adverse events. And the other thing, but what I think is really missing from a lot of these discussions um, is that so much of the the cost-benefit analysis is about that the the individual when really the benefit is to the the general public and i think that was lost you you know and you get a vaccine not so much for yourself you do it for your family for your community for those who might be vulnerable that's why you get a vaccine it's an altruistic act i think that was missing and lastly if i may <laughs> if i may the other thing i think that where the, the it, it's been very muddied i'll put it that way is the representations of risk, you know, the risks associated associate with these vaccines, yes, we have to be completely transparent, but the risks are incredibly rare, right? You know, one in 100,000, uh, that kind of risk profile. And so I think we needed much more risk context when they were talking about these vaccines. So when people hear and read and listen to all that's going on out there, some of the misinformation, some of the mixed messaging, sometimes vaccine hesitancy uh, increases, although just this week, we are seeing, uh, according to some polling, that people have confidence in the vaccines for the most part and are more than willing, 8 out of 10 are willing to have a vaccination. But we then deal with vaccine envy, those who are able to get Pfizer and Moderna, and then there's vaccine regret from some who've had AstraZeneca. How do we handle that? 
Yeah, that's a great question, and, and I think that's, a, that's something that is going to become increasingly relevant as we start to bump up against uh, hesitancy. So I, I love that you started with the good news, because <laughs> I think it's so, so important to recognize that most Canadians, you know, despite all, all the conflicting information that we hear out there, most Canadians support vaccines. You know, most Canadians you know, support sensible public health restrictions. You're, you're right. You know, I, I think that uh, we are seeing some differences in confidence between the different kinds of vaccines. I'm sure you've seen that data where people are very confident of the Pfizer, less confident of the AstraZeneca. You know, is that going to create more hesitancy as we nudge close, you know, as we get more of the population vaccinated? And I, and I think, and there's some evidence to back this up, it is going to create that hesitancy. It is going to create that frustration because because look, when people think of, 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 you know, the vaccination hesitant, I think they often think of those hardcore deniers, when, it, when in reality it's, it's really the, that movable middle that's going to make the biggest difference, right? Those who are, who are still just trying to figure out what to do, uh, what vaccine to get. And, and so when, that me- when the message is confused, I, I worry that that movable middle, you know, those ones sort of on the margin, that we're going to lose them. And to add to the confusion, there's now talk that uh, that there might be for booster shots instead of AstraZeneca, there may be Pfizer or Moderna offered to those who had the AstraZeneca in the first place. And I believe that that might also increase the confidence in the booster shot, but it also might increase hesitancy as well, because again, there's confusion. Uh, I think you're right, Anne. If my if my email and my social media feed is any in any indication, we're already starting to see that. I'm already starting to get questions about that exact exact topic, and and also you know the 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 spreading out of the of the second shot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a really interesting science policy question because what what's going on here is, is you're weighing the benefits to the general public, right, and to, to fighting this pandemic against the benefits to the individual. And I want to be really clear clear that, you know, most of the research we have here, you know, suggests that, you know, the spreading out is fine um, and that the, you know, even a single shot is, is incredibly helpful, right? That's another really important point that we need to make. So it'll be very interesting. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that this is going to add to more confusion and, per, and, and perhaps, you know, sort of decrease, decrease trust. You know, people get frustrated. Well, I got this vac- you know, vaccine. Now you want me to get this vaccine? You know, but I hope, I hope that we can handle the science communication in a way that explains why these, these decisions have been made and why it's still beneficial to you, but more importantly, most importantly, beneficial to, to the general public. A quick Q&A at this point. Last weekend, you tweeted, like this message, focus on vaccination rates, not herd immunity as a way out of this pandemic. So what are your thoughts about herd immunity? I'm still, I'm a glass half full person, Ed. <laughs> I, you know, I, I like to believe that we can still get to, to herd immunity. It's, go, it's going to be tough. I don't know if you heard in the United States very recently, you know, at the federal level, many of the experts are saying they're not going to get there in the U.S., largely because of hesitancy. So our conversation we're having today is super important. Um, I like to believe that we're going to still be able to do it. You know, Alberta looks grim where we have almost 30% hesitancy here. Uh, but I worry that if we, if we focus just on herd immunity and the message is we're not going to get there, that people are going to give up, right? Uh, that's the wrong that's the wrong message. I like the message that was in that piece. Um, it's, 
you know, even if we don't get the herd immunity, the more people that we get vaccinated, we're going to decrease community spread, right? And that is just so, so important. It's going to come with so many benefits to the individual, but also to the community, to the economy, uh, to education, you know, on and on and on. So, yes, getting vaccinated really valuable, really important, even if we don't get all the way to herd immunity. Your thoughts on teens and even younger and vaccinations? Uh, I I think it's a great idea. And uh, I do think the calculus, the risk-benefit calculus, a little bit different, right? Because, yes, kids can get COVID. Yes, kids can have horrible consequences as a result of getting COVID, but much rarer, right? Uh, Still, for the purposes of herd immunity, for the purpose of slowing um, slowing community spread still really important to get uh, get kids and teens vaccinated, um, and I, I think that we, as I said, the calculus, the cost benefit cal- calculus, a little bit different. So I think we want to be really careful about the research and really careful about you know um, how we roll this out. But the good news is, and I think that's happening. You know, I think the regulators are taking a, a very cl- uh, close look at the data. We have more d- data emerging about kids, quite young kids now, uh, you know, in clinical trials. So that's the good news. Yes, get vaccinated. Really, really important. Vaccination passports being talked about a lot right now. Oh, interesting question, isn't it? And, you know, I, you know so I think they're ne- inevitable. Some version of them are, are inevitable. You know, I think the big issue with them uh, is, you know, the, are the equity issues, the stigma issues. You know, if we, so by that I mean we want to make sure everyone has access to vaccines in, in a fair way, right? You know, and, and, and if that isn't there, then vaccination passports, I think there, there could be equity justice issues associated with them. But once we get past that hurdle, and I, and I, hope, I hope that we are going to get past that hurdle, there is, I, I think there's some logic in a form of vaccination passport. Look, they've been around before, right? You know, you have to get vaccinated to go to certain jurisdictions, you know, in certain countries. Uh, some provinces, you know, Ontario, Manitoba, New Brunswick have some degree of mandatory vaccination to have your kids put in school. So I think we're going to see some version of this. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, see if we have any legal challenges. Uh, and one more point on this, and they also might serve as, as, as an incentive, right? You know, if, uh, if people see people using these passports to be able to go to, to events, et cetera, then, then maybe, you know, it'll serve as, as an incentive. I do think it's messy. I do think there are issues associated with them, but I, I think they're likely to appear in some form. Where does one go for truthful, scientific information? Okay, so I'm gonna. I'm going to. Uh, I'm not gonna say be self-serving here. I'm gonna promote something that I believe in. We've started a new, a new initiative called Science Up First. It's an independent entity uh, uh, that is informed by fantastic independent experts from across uh, across Canada. Hashtag Science Up First, and we're posting constantly posting on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're gonna be on TikTok soon. Credible engaging content about COVID, about vaccines, and also on our webpage, Science Up First webpage, we have a list of credible sources of information from around the world uh, of varying kinds, too, and some of them are, are like, you know, you may not expect it, like the City of London has got a great, a great website, uh, uh, Ottawa Public Health, great resources. Um, so uh, we, we uh, uh, hope, we hope that this answers this exact question, credible information, easily accessible, understandable for all. Come join the Science Up First team. You know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. What do you say to the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers out there? 
Well, you know, fortunately, and again, glass half full, <laughs> the, the really hardcore the really hardcore anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, are, remain a relatively small cohort in Canada. So, you know, if you believe the research, it's certainly below 10%. Um, I, I, I would say to them, please don't infect the movable middle with your, <laughs> with your rhetoric. I know I'm, I, and I also recognize I'm probably not going to change your minds, uh, and research increasingly tells me that, that I'm not going to change your minds. So, uh, listen, I'm going to do the, my best to make sure that your uh, science-free rhetoric does not harm the rest of the country. There you said it. And I must uh, comment on your email signature, by the way, as you and I have been back and forth. It says, relax, damn it. What does that mean, and how does that fit into your philosophy? <laughs> uh, that's, that's my latest book, Relax, Damn It, actually. So thank you for asking. Uh, and, and that book actually tackles a lot of things we've talked about today, about this chaotic information environment that we live in. And, and, and the gimmick of the book is it takes place over a typical day. Um, you know, all the decisions that we make throughout the day, big and small, you know, <laughs> drinking coffee, toilet seat up or down, but also more, you know, some more weighty decisions. And I look at all the, all of the social forces that shape those decisions, all, for all of us, for you, for me, for everyone. Hmm. The author of Relax, Damn It! and Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, Professor Tim Caulfield. What a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks for having me on, Ann. Here's a novel idea. The University of Lethbridge is offering tuition, but there's a catch. Tina Cortez with those details. Joining us from the University of Lethbridge is Kathleen Massey, Vice President, Students. Kathleen, tell us about this contest. It's worth a shot. It's worth a shot is a great opportunity for any of our students to enter. There are nine wonderful grand prizes, uh, tuition and fees for fall 2021 at the domestic rate, and then many other prizes, 132 in total. And what they simply need to do is um, register for courses for the fall and get at least one COVID vaccination uh, before the deadline, September 8th at 1159. All right, so is this about making vaccines mandatory for students returning to campus this fall, or is it about creating that safe space when and if classes resume in person? Vaccinations are not mandatory. In fact, it is part of our effort to make uh, the space, the return to fall in-person activities, safe and healthy, and make sure that we do that for everyone here at the university. We have a campus in Calgary and a campus in Lethbridge. We've all, as you know, we've all been online for so long, and our students are clamoring to come back in person, to be able to take classes in person, participate in sports activities, club activities, meet their friends for coffee, see their profs, all in person. And so it's, it's helping, it's one way that helps us to get there uh, and to do this safely. Have you heard from your students? What do they think about the contest? The students, um, we're getting wonderful feedback about the contest. We've got already well over a thousand entrants. It's uh, resonating with them. We're really happy to see the take up. And what are some of the other prizes? Can you detail some of those for us? 
Oh, sure. Absolutely. So, of course, there are the nine grand prizes of tuition and fees for the fall at the Canadian rate. And additionally, we have three $500 book gift cards um, for the bookstore, for the university bookstore. So three of those prizes, we also have $20 gift cards um, called Bridge Bucks at the university that students can use to get a meal or a coffee or that sort of thing on campus. And then 100 pairs of our wonderful UofL branded socks um, that they can wear at sporting events and all sorts of other activities when they come on campus. So 132 prizes in total. Do you think other universities will follow suit? Well, I, I hope so, or they'll do something else that's equally creative and fun and engaging. You know, we're all working hard to try to make sure that we create a safe and healthy environment. Um, you know, when we're all back on campus, that's what we're working toward. You know, for us here in Lethbridge, we are located in southern Alberta, but our students come from many places across the world. Um, it's, we bring many people to Lethbridge and to Calgary, and so we want to do our part as a community leader as well, you know, to help the community uh, get back on track, to get us beyond the pandemic, to get our economy kick-started again and to support our students and their experience at the university. So I imagine other universities and colleges are thinking the same thing, and I encourage them to be equally creative and find a fun way to do this with their students. Do you think in-person learning will resume this fall, at least for your campus? We are hoping so. That's what we're planning toward, and... Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. None of us has a crystal mm -hmm. ball, but this is what we're working toward. The vaccination rollout here in Alberta is quite strong. It's going well. Students age 12 and up, people age 12 and up, are eligible to get vaccinated now, and that's very promising. So there, there, I anticipate in the fall there will continue to be public health measures that we'll all need to take, but we're hoping that we can get back um, in person in the fall. We have announced that, and uh, that's what we're working toward. Will there be supports in place to help students transition to in-person learning once again, especially because many of them have been online for over a year, year and a half at that point? Yeah, actually what we know, and this is why it's such a pressing priority for us to get back into in-person, into our uh, you know, to help our students get back on campus, uh, those who normally would attend on campus, is because they've experienced feelings of isolation um, and mental health has been challenging for them. We've seen an increase in the demand for our mental health services, um, whether it's group um, workshops or one-on-one uh, -on -one counseling. There has been an increase, a substantial increase over the pandemic. And so um, we do anticipate that the transition back to in-person will continue to be a challenge. And so we'll need to, um, and we will, uh, provide ongoing mental health support and create safe activities for them to ease themselves back into um, an in-person experience. And so our mental health team is ready. Our um, student orientation team is ready. We also imagine that students who started in fall 2020 really didn't have the kind of new student orientation that they would normally have experienced. So we're going to help them as well 
um, get oriented to an in-person university experience this fall. That's our plan at this point. Well, sounds like a solid and uh, good plan for sure. Kathleen Massey from the University of Lethbridge, thanks for your time and good luck with the contest. Thank you very much. They're calling it the pandemic playoffs. Jim Lang with news from the NHL. It's hard to believe, but after what has been a COVID-19 pandemic NHL season, the postseason is here. All the teams have been determined. And then for the first time since 1979, it's the Maple Leafs and Montreal Canadiens in the postseason. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by one of the great sports writers in this country, the senior national writer for the Athletic Canada, Sean Fitzgerald. Fitzy, how are you, my friend? Right up until you announced that name, I was really excited to hear who was coming on the radio program. <laughs> that's high That's high praise. I'm never going to live up to that. It, it is. I mean, before we get into some of the, the details of the season, 1979 for Lease and Habs, I mean, it's a lifetime ago. Yeah, it's really interesting. I did a story not that long ago just because I was curious. I mean, I was... I was born in 1977, so I'm an an old person, and I have no living memory of Leafs Canadians. So I went back just to take a look at the series, and you know, I I ended up doing a bit of a story on uh, the guy who was in net on April 22nd, 1979, which is the last time the Leafs played the Canadians, and his name's Paul Harrison. He was in net because you know the starter, Mike Palmatier, had suffered a pretty serious arm injury in double overtime uh, the night before. So um, you know he did his best, but the Canadians went on to win again in a close one and went on to win their fourth straight Stanley Cup. And um, you know he bounced around a bit and ended up going on to a career in policing with the OPP up in Timmins, and, and more than that. He helped uh, de- develop the, the D.A.R.E. program, the, the uh, anti-drug program up in Timmins, and ended up uh, also leading a couple of um, equipment drives for children um, in need of hockey equipment up there. So, yeah, it, it was interesting to take a look back that, you know, one, that was, that was the last Montreal Canadiens dynasty that ended in 1979, and two, that after that season in 1979, that's where I think you can probably argue that the Leafs took their um, generational turn into the dark ages, that Lanny McDonald was traded not long after, Daryl Sittler renounced his captaincy not long after, that Roger Nielsen left and Punch Imlac came back in and the Leafs went into the dark ages for, oh, I don't know, what year is it now? Well, I mean, I mean, but seriously, it probably didn't really come back until the 93 playoffs with Dougie Gilmore, right? That's a heck of a thing. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, 92, they started, you know, making their way back a bit. But, yeah, I mean, for the, for the entirety of the 1980s, you weren't wearing a Leafs shirt or a Leafs jersey um, unless your grandparents got it for you for Christmas because there was no reason to. It was, it was the lost decade. And in a weird kind of way, you can trace it back to that last playoff series with the Canadians in 79 because you know they they really started moving south after that and now you take a look at this year and we have a generational player with the Maple Leafs Austin Matthews with a phenomenal year 40 goals in a shortened season they're the number one seed yes it's been the old Canadian North division but my goodness they've been good this year yeah I mean that's that's going to be the the one thing I, I think that you know, for everybody who loves to detract from the Leafs, of which there are legion, um, you know, it's quality of competition. 
that we just don't know. Um, now, again, you can also point out that the Leafs, because they're in the Canadian division, they didn't get their, their regular complement of games against teams like, you know, I don't know, say the Buffalo Sabres. Um, but, you know, they did have to play, you know, some teams that, that have some skill and some talent, the Edmonton Oilers. Um, but, yeah, the quality of competition will bear out after the second round of the playoffs when whoever emerges from the Canadian division is going to have to venture and, and play teams from the U.S. But, yeah, I mean, looking back strictly at the regular season, the Leafs have done things statistically and in the standings that they haven't done in generations. What's different about this year, I, I was thinking about this before we started talking, Sean, is this reminds me back in the day when the American League and National League were such a mystery. And as a Jays fan, you only saw a National League player at the All-Star Game or the World Series. And now we have a situation where no one knows really how good Sidney Crosby's been this year or the Vegas Golden Knights or the Carolina Hurricanes. It's, it's all going to be a new thing for hockey fans to realize, oh my goodness, these are good teams. We haven't seen them all year. Yeah, you sort of see them on the highlights or when things go south, right? Like you don't, you don't pay attention. And I think that really kind of underscores too that, you know, in the NFL, right, if you like the NFL and you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you're probably still going to sit down on a Sunday and watch the Steelers play the Carolina Panthers, right? Like you'll watch a lot. It's sort of a national thing. NBA, I mean, you know, if you like the Raptors, of which lots of people do, you still might get drawn into, say, you know, a Celtics-Lakers game. With hockey, I don't know. It feels like it's a little bit closer to baseball, but you might not be as, as likely to watch it game if your team isn't in it so i mean certainly the playoff ratings bear that out year over year and yeah i mean i don't know if people would have you know made a point to watch washington play a lot this year watch you know just to see how good the the, the vegas is and you know i think we're going to find out pretty soon i've been paying attention a little bit more because we're getting close to the playoffs and if I'm the Eastern Conference of the NHL, I am worried about the Boston Bruins because Taylor Hall has been phenomenal <laughs> since he arrived there. It's, it's really, I mean, it's a heck of a thing to watch. I was lucky enough to cover um, the second of his Memorial Cup wins with the Windsor Spitfires. And that team was just so loaded. I mean, you know, Ryan Ellis was the defenseman, the longtime Predators defenseman now. You know, Zach Cassian was on that team. That There are a lot of folks who have gone on to really good careers in the NHL off that team. And he was just incredible. He was on another level. He was fast. He had skill. And then he went and he's never really played with an NHL team that has anywhere near that postseason ceiling. Really, I mean, he's been with teams that have struggled, you know, in Edmonton and, and then obviously in Buffalo. So then, you know, just the other day to hear him talking about being in Boston and that, you know, things like culture, which are always sort of tough to pin down, but, you know, confidence, which is, you know, can be pretty easy to pin down. And he said that, you know, when you have confidence on the ice, um, you, know, you don't really notice it. But when you don't have confidence on the ice, it's really all you can think about. And to see what he's done, especially in the last couple of games with Boston, really does evoke some memories of the kinds of things that he did, certainly early in his career with the Oilers, but especially when he was with the Windsor Spitfires on that team that just tore through the opposition in the playoffs when it mattered. So, so yeah, I mean, he would absolutely be a player to watch in the playoffs. Speaking with Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer for The Athletic, um, it's playoff time. It'll be going on until July. 
hockey fans, <laughs> I know it's weird to say that, uh, the hockey fans will notice crowds and fans in some arenas, not in Canadian arenas. Do you have any indication from the NHL or all the different levels of government from your writing and reporting when we might see fans in Canadian arenas again? Not Everything is, is on hold. That's not breaking news. Um, but, you know, even for the, the Canadian Football League, that, you know, they're, they're still in the, the process of, you know, trying to sell their return to play uh, protocols to the various provincial governments. And, you know, there was a story again this week that British Columbia hasn't approved that return to play. And, you know, so those are, you know, in football, those are outdoor games, but you still have, you know, the idea of having all of these people together. And even if they're outside, then, you know, they still have to go inside to use the bathroom or how do they, you know, line up to get their, you know, adult pops and their popcorn and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But I just don't think that any level of government, any public health unit anywhere in this country is going to be comfortable in the near term of saying, yeah, you can have people back in the building. So that's not just for the NHL or the Canadian Football League or the Blue Jays who are still playing in the United States. It's, it goes all the way down to things like minor hockey. When can minor hockey return? Because you're looking at getting people inside you know, pretty close quarters. I, I'm not sure when that's going to arrive. Certainly, hopefully by fall. Um, but I don't think it'll be at 100% capacity by then either. Because, it, it, I mean, as a, as a sports fan, I do find a twinge of envy to see these like different countries like New Zealand and England and other countries around the world where they've got COVID under control and the fans are at sporting events thinking, I miss that so much. Yeah, and, and then the other hand is I still find myself watching, especially you know when the Blue Jays open down in Texas at Arlington, and you see 45,000 <laughs> people you know watching the Texas Rangers play. I couldn't help but... You know, looking in the stands and feeling a little bit uneasy. Yeah, like we're yeah. still we're still not through this. I mean, there's there's some more promising news today in Ontario that you know numbers of people in ICU requiring ICU care is down. That you know the the rolling seven day averages for case counts in Ontario is down, but they're still at numbers that eight months ago would have given us nightmares. We've just become sort of, you know, kind of numb to them. So there's still a long way to go to get this thing anywhere close to under control. So, I mean, unfortunately, as much as, you know, it would, you know, the weather turns and it becomes really nice time to maybe sit at Rogers Center and watch a baseball game, we're just not there yet. Well, wouldn't it just be a Leafs fans lot in life that they would finally win the Stanley Cup and no fans <laughs> are there to watch them do it at Scotiabank Arena? Not only that, but there's there's no Maple Leaf Square, and if they go on and win the whole thing, there's no parade. No, it's, 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 it's a totally it's a totally oddly fitting nod to what it is to be a Leafs fan. No, seriously, they, they saw no parade, a virtual Zoom call with <laughs> with fans and Sheldon Keefe and Mitch Marner celebrating the cup. That's such a Leafs thing to do. Yeah, you can win, but only partially. Sean Fitzgerald, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, enjoy your work, as always. And, uh, well, I mean, uh, hopefully we don't get a sunburn watching the playoffs and deep into July. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Jim. When we come back, city building in Vaughan continues and sending a message of hope to India. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. As the pandemic rages on, more and more York Region citizens are being vaccinated in the hopes that as the number of shots in arms rises, the COVID-19 case count will fall. In the meantime, the mayor of Vaughan, Maurizio Bevilacqua, believes that, quote, while COVID-19 persists, city building in Vaughan continues. He joins us now on The Feed with details on Vaughan's future path. Thank you for joining us, Mayor Bevilacqua. Thank you so much, Ann. May I begin with condolences and our deepest sympathies here at 105.9 The Region, the loss of your beautiful mother, who was, I know, a shining light in your life. Yes, it's, um, I, I thank you very much for the, your expression of condolences. And I was very fortunate to spend uh, two and a half hours with her uh, just a few days prior to her passing. And uh, she imparted on me uh, some uh, final words and there was that she lived a happy life, that she was happy with her family. And she also said some very touching things about uh, human existence. She, um, she reminded me that, uh, unfortunately, some very young people lose their lives, two, three years old, four years old. And she said that she was really blessed to have lived uh, over 80 years and um, lived a life that uh, represented probably the very best uh, that a person could hope for. And... Uh, she was a kind woman, um, very important part of my life, and really a shining light in my life. And uh, I'm going to miss her. But that conversation uh, gave me a sense of closure that um, that was so meaningful to me. And I know that that conversation has a purpose also for my future as well. Oh, I believe that. And she was so proud of you and all of her children. And, you know, she would always be so expressive about the, your political life, including as an MP and now as the mayor of Vaughan. And I'm so glad that she lived to see all of the great things that you are doing leading your city through this pandemic. And so let's begin with the two-year strategic plan update report. Tell me about that and, and what has happened in Vaughan in the past couple of years. And this would be through the, some of the toughest parts of the pandemic as well. Yes, and it's. Uh, I've always said that you know, whenever you're facing a crisis, in whether it's personal or otherwise, or in cities' history, you need to keep moving. You need to move forward, and uh, you need to be focused on on tangible goals that uh, that speak to improving the quality of life uh, of the of the citizens of Vaughan. And so, you know, we have so much to be grateful for. We, you know, we welcomed Niagara University. We opened up a park. Um, North Maple Regional Park, a 900-acre park. We we developed, uh, you know, a senior leadership team governance model. We we uh, we also completed the, the review of Green Directions Bond because of our great uh, commitment to to the environment. Uh, we we completed the pedestrian cycling master plan update. We're also working very hard to get a subway on the eastern part of our city, the Young uh, Young Street extension. Uh, we're working very hard on that. Um, we opened our our tenth uh, fire station, Fire Station Seven Four. We completed the land acquisition for Fire Station Seven One. Uh, we're doing um, you know great things, including you know we delivered the uh, Clark Avenue Active Transportation Facility, multimodal operational road safety improvements. You uh, and of course you know a great great achievement has been. You know, the opening and the completion of the new Cortellucci Bond Hospital, a world-class hospital right here in in the city of Bond. So the idea here, um, and is that although we're facing a crisis, we've got to keep moving, we've got to move forward, 
and uh, we can never surrender until our dreams become reality. The other part of this, I think, is the time and the energy that you and the city of Vaughan will put into recognizing public works and public workers, if you will. It's Public Works Week, May 16th until the 22nd. It's a way to celebrate the fine work of Vaughn's frontline workers through this pandemic, keeping Vaughn safe, clean, and beautiful. Very important that these people are recognized. Absolutely. And uh, you are only, as a leader, you're only as strong as your team. And I'm very blessed to have an exceptional team in public works, uh, people that are in public life for, for all the right reasons. They care about the community. And every day in every way to demonstrate this uh, deep affection and love that they have for the community. And, and so in recognition of the week that you cited, the city will raise uh, the National Public Works uh, Week flag on Tuesday, May 17th at both the, the Joint Operations Center as well as City Hall. We'll, we'll also illuminate... Um, City Hall Council Chambers Orange on uh, Tuesday, May 17th, and uh, the Vaughan Public Works Week Committee will host a virtual event on, on Friday, May uh, 21st at 1 p.m. Uh, to really speak about uh, the great uh, public works team that we have, you know, environmental services, transportation and fleet management, and parks, forestry, and horticultural operations. These are the key key players in that in that organization. And uh, the theme of this year's Public Works Week is Stronger Together in recognition of the extraordinary efforts that, uh, that uh, our team has, um, has performed to keep the community clean and safe during the global uh, pandemic. So overall, a, a, a great way to express uh, gratitude to people who, uh, who give of themselves uh, in, a way, in a very selfless way uh, to improve the quality of life and standard of living here in the city of Bonn. And often their work goes unnoticed, unrecognized, and you're going to make sure that they are feted, they are celebrated the week of May 16th to the 22nd. So you mentioned Stronger Together. There's another phrase that I quite like, and it is, the children, they are our future. You, I understand, love to connect with young people, with students, to get to know them, for them to get to know more about you and about government. Why is it so important that you, as the mayor of Vaughan, are reaching out to students at this point? Well, it's important because, um, you know, we, we often hear that children are our future, and that is true, but children also are present. And uh, during COVID-19, I think it's important for, for people who are in playing leadership roles in our in our community, whatever whatever sector of society it is, it's really irrelevant. What is relevant is the fact that we reach out to each other, that we understand it, uh, each other, that we establish a common bond, a common language, a common understanding of what we're going through, and that you always provide hope to uh, to uh, to these young uh, students because. They are so important. They are a, a generation that uh, has had to face uh, COVID-19 right off the bat. I mean, they, they didn't, we weren't given a break at all. I can tell you that my generation um, never faced a, something like COVID-19. I was born in 1960. We never really faced a crisis like these young people have. And, and what I also love about uh, attending these various, I do quite a few of them, over my political career, I'm I am sure that I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of students through my school speaking tour over 30 years. And um, they, they're, for me, they're always a source of, of joy, and they're really fulfill, very fulfilling to, to talk to them. And, you know, we get some interesting questions <laughs> from them, like, what made you 
want to be a mayor of Vaughn and what choice did you did, did you make in order to reach that goal? What does the life of a, a mayor look like? You know, what are the hardest parts of the main challenges about being mayor and what are the biggest responsibilities as a municipal leader? And, you know, what do you do about COVID and what do you, where do you see Vaughn in five years? And so you have, uh, I go there to, to, to basically inform them. But what I always learn is that I'm actually the one doing the learning. <laughs> And they are the ones teaching me because they're making me reflect on some very basic fundamental questions that only children can really ask. Uh, you know, there's a purity to their questions. There is an innocence to their questions, but they ground you in the truth. Yeah. And that to me is, is very important. They have this great ability to distill life to its essential core. And uh, I enjoy it very much uh, because in, in some ways you can sort of guide them. Uh, to understand that ultimately life comes down to the value added and self-respect. And by the, by that, I mean to contribute, to make a contribution to society, to make a contribution to your family, to your friends, uh, to your neighbors, but also have the self-respect. Understand that, you know, you're special, you're genuine, you're authentic, you're unique. There's only one of you in, in the world uh, uh, with, you know, and the world has over 7.5 billion people living in it. And that, and I stress that to them because I want them to believe in themselves. I want to believe them in their full potential. And I spend a lot of time talking about lessons that I have learned in life, which, uh, which have helped me and my community. Well, you know, you are a leader and you lead by example, but we can learn so much from our young people. One quick thought before we say goodbye, ever consider having a student advisor? So a student who advises you on issues and, and gives you his or her very clear and unfiltered view of politics. Yes, and I, I, it's, it's a very good idea, and And uh, I must say, though, that when I go to these uh, schools, um, there's so many of them have so many great ideas that uh, that really the fundamental role they play is they make you reflect, right? They sometimes you know you have these conversations with with young people and they have they they introduce to you uh, to you a different perspective, which is is very important. But I will take your, your suggestion under advisement and see what I can do with that. Well, I appreciate that. And it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Mayor Bevilacqua, and hear the, the great things that are continuing to happen in Vaughan, even though we are in the midst of a horrific pandemic. And I thank you for your honesty and for your integrity. Take care, and I look forward to the next time we speak on the feed. Thank you. COVID-19 continues to ravage India, but here at home, York Region wants to send a message of hope. Karen Johnson with more. Longtime York Region resident Sally Gonzalez was distraught over the recent spike in COVID cases taking lives all over India and the lack of supplies. Even though she moved to Canada from Goa many, many years ago, she still had strong ties and her heart was still with India. She didn't know what to do, and many of us fall into that situation. She joins us here on the feed to share her initiative to help bring awareness to the issue that is plaguing India. Welcome, Sally, to the feed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the feed, Karen. You know, Sally, it's it's so wonderful to, to see people in the community like yourself. Um, you look at an issue 
and you think, gee, what can I do? But what did you feel the need and why did you feel the need to start this initiative and, and, and what were your ties to India? The COVID-19 pandemic has enveloped us all. In Canada, we're managing the virus with total dedication and deploying all resources to contain the virus. In India, which represents 20% of the world's population, the situation is alarming and heartbreaking. Canadians have a special bond with India. Many have families in India and have lost loved ones in India to COVID-19. On May the 6th, more than 400,000 new COVID-19 cases were reported in India and nearly 4,000 deaths, both new records. In the week of April 26, of the nearly 6 million COVID-19 cases reported globally, India accounted for more than 2.5 million. That's 46%. Mm-hmm. Brazil and the United States are next, but each account for less than 10%. At this juncture of human suffering, we want to create empathy for a suffering nation. We want to send a message of hope and show that Canadians stand together with the people of India and that the world has not abandoned them. So do you think it is possible as a community to to support such an international initiative? And, And what is this initiative that you have? People across Canada, including those least involved with the COVID trauma in India, are heartbroken and primed for action. Many social, professional, and religious organizations are supporting us. Churches are making announcements. Local groups such as the Knights of Columbus, Catholic Women's League will notify their members. The Indo-Canada Chamber of Commerce, a high-profile South Asian professional organization, is supporting this initiative. Radio stations in Ontario, just like this station, 105.9 The Region, is participating. Other organizations have also pledged to join us. All right. So what is it that we have to do as a community? What is it that you have planned that's going to make people stand up and take notice? What did you want us to do? We want your listeners, and we invite them, to join the candlelight vigil for India's COVID-19 victims on Sunday, May 16. One, stand on your doorsteps. Beam phones, candles, and flashlights into the night sky between 7 and 8 p.m. Place a light in the window or turn on the outside lights. As daylight passes to dusk, keep the light burning into the night. Two, pause and take a moment to honor and remember the lives lost to provide comfort to those who continue to grieve for their loved ones and the thousands of tears they have shed. And acknowledge and recognize that they're not alone. Three, encourage your family, children, schools, friends, neighbors, and acquaintances to get involved. Four, share on social media with everyone you know, including the younger generation, your kids and grandkids. Five, take a photo and post your tribute on social media. Tell me, Sally, why, why a ray of light? Why a candle? Why is that so significant? You know, all of us can light a candle. It sounds simple, but it will make a difference. You will feel it instantly. Lighting a candle will send a message to India that we Canadians care and remember all those who have lost a loved one. 
So that's why we're proposing a nationwide candlelight vigil on Sunday, May 16th, between 7 and 8 p.m., to help heal India's suffering. India needs it at this hour, when millions of lives are endangered by COVID-19. Remember that as you light a candle, you're not alone. Others around the world are doing it too. So far, people in the United States, UK, Italy, Australia, New Zealand, and India have pledged their support. Now, just really quickly, you came to Canada, and you were originally from Goa, correct? That's right. That's right. And now, right now in Goa, that has some of the highest numbers of the COVID-19 virus escalating. Very, very, very worrying. Yes, Goa is just like the rest of India. Mm -hmm. We're hurting there so much with what they're telling us is one out of every every two people has been infected. Mm -hmm. That is very, very, very scaring and very heartbreaking. And it hits close to home, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sally Gonzalez. Please join her and as a community as we support India in their cause for, for combating COVID-19. Get out there on Sunday evening at 7 p.m., light a candle, a flashlight, put your front porch on, take a picture, take a moment, and pause for the greater good. This is not just a South Asian thing. This is a humanity thing. Thank you so much, Sally, for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Karen, and 105.9 The Region, The Feed, for your participation and support, and all the very best to your listeners. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.